Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so we go from admitting that we have a struggle, being able to articulate what it is, uh, to acknowledge the breadth and impact of that struggle. Uh, And there is a sense in which it it gets worse before it gets better. Uh, You know, that is the general pattern in life. Um, It's the general pattern of movies. If that weren't true, movies would be really boring. If If a movie was just things were bad for this person and it got better. Every movie would be about seven minutes, and we don't know why we'd have to pay $25 to go watch it. Um, but there's this sense of kind of progression, how, how this keeps getting worse, how's it going to get better, and then the change, and it's also that way with the gospel. I've often heard the gospel uh, displayed as uh, there is the really bad news of the gospel, uh, that we are worse than we ever could have imagined that we were, and then there's the really good news of the gospel Uh, that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. And we have to be able to embrace both. Um, Now, uh, what I have found oftentimes when it comes to making these kinds of assessments for somebody who is uh, in the midst of a struggle with depression and anxiety is they feel overwhelmed and they just don't want to look at it. They don't so much want a strategy as they just want relief. Uh, And... Uh, If I could maybe give you a picture of what I think that mentality is like, it's kind of like the game that uh, I think every big brother has played with every little brother uh, since there was printed coinage. Uh, And and we try to get little brother to trade us dimes for nickels. Uh, And if we can get little brother convinced that the nickel's better because it's bigger, and that the dime is not as good because it's small, but little bro, I love you. I'll take your dime and give you my nickel just because I love you, man. Um, That's what happens when we start settling for relief instead of a strategy that will actually help us move through the experience. Is we wind up going emotionally bankrupt uh, because we're making a bad trade. Uh, And I think that's the kind of thing that Leslie Vernick is alerting us to when she says, strong emotions cause significant blind spots. We get into those moments where emotions are intense and there's just certain things we don't see. And she gives us one example. Uh, She says, we need to see chronic busyness as a warning bell that we've gotten out of tune with God and reduced ourselves into human doings instead of human beings. And that's just one of those types of blind spots Uh, that we might fall into. Um, But as we get into this aspect of acknowledging the breadth and impact of our struggle, I think it's worth us revisiting the question, when is anxiety and depression sinful? Because I think there are clearly times when we would say anxiety and depression are not sinful. When we're in the midst of the suspense over a good book, a good movie, or a close ball game, We don't need to repent for that. When we're crying with a friend uh, who's lost a loved one, that is sadness 
But it's not wrong. When we anticipate the significant event in life, maybe the birth of a child, it, it, there's this sense of, it feels like anxiety. Neurochemically, it's the same you know, cocktail going off in our brain, but we don't need to repent for that. The forethought of unpleasant circumstances that allows us to be a wise planner. We don't need to repent for that. The drive of an athlete who channels the possibility of failure into a strong work ethic. We don't need to repent for that. And so, there are some cases where we would say, no, we don't need to repent. And all we're acknowledging there is that Philippians 4.4, be anxious for nothing, can get along with Matthew 5.4, the beatitude that said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Rejoicing the Lord always doesn't mean we can never be sad. So how should we understand those stronger passages like Philippians 4? Uh, I think partly we, we understand them as a warning. Uh, where God would be saying, if that unpleasant experience that you're having saps your capacity for joy, you need to be concerned about that. You need to pay attention to it. You need to do something about it. Maybe similar to that, it's just an expression of concern. You know, when a parent says to their child, who is over 16, I'm not ready for that, um, but that's why zebras don't get ulcers. But uh, when you think about a child who, who's 16, and the parent says, drive safe. Is that parent going all big brother Nazi on them, saying, I've got a camera in your car, I want your hands at 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, don't you touch the dial, I am going to be watching you, if you do the any, is that a threat? Or is that the parent saying, I love you. Pay attention to what you're doing. This, this is an important part of life. Don't treat it trivially. I think many of those passages are God the Father caring for us. Now beyond saying that there are some expressions of anxiety and depression uh, that are not sinful, I think we can go so far as to say there's some of them that are good. Um, there's... There's aspects of depression and anxiety that warn us of danger. That's a good thing. I'm kind of glad God made me that way. Uh, there's aspects of depression and anxiety that motivate me uh, for change. There's a sense that something's wrong and it's off and I don't want it to be this way. And it, it triggers this response that I need to do something different. Um, I can use it to console a friend who is going through a hard time. If I had no capacity for depression and I was talking to somebody who was hurting if I was forced gump morally Teflon how helpful would I be and so uh, you know there's this nice little diagram here with the with the bendy uh, line there kind of bell curve that helps us see some of that uh, that when it comes to the experience of stress uh, there tends to be a, a certain amount of stress that, that is actually good. It motivates and drives us. It leads us to a level of functioning that is better uh, than if none of that was present. Uh, clinically, they tend to call that eustress. Uh, that's not like middle schoolers going, you. Uh, that's a Greek prefix that means good. Good stress. Stress that maximizes what's going on. Uh, some of you got through school on this. 
because you thought, I just can't study until the last minute. And once the pressure is there, then I kind of cram it all in. And even though everybody told you that wasn't the best way, and I would advocate that's really not. But, but you kind of got through on you stress. Uh, and then there comes a point to where that becomes debilitating uh, in, a, in a progressive fashion, where that level of stress begins to be detrimental to what I am able to do. And, and so... Um, you know, we've looked at stress being neutral, when it can be good. Let's ask the question, when would it be wrong? Uh, and my working definition here would be something becomes sinful when it offends God or violates His design. Uh, and so here's some of the kinds of questions we might ask. Does my experience of depression and anxiety come from a doubt of God's goodness? Am I upset because I think the person in charge of the world is against me? Does it come from trying to control things that are God's to determine? Uh, is it rooted in other sins like bitterness, greed, jealousy, or discontentment? Those high rumination kind of sins that just involve repeating something over and over again. Does it come from a sense of entitlement? Uh, or comparing myself to others and not being able to be satisfied unless my life is better than everybody that I know? Does it come from some kind of fear of being found out? Um, there's something I've done or just a weakness that I don't want anybody to know. And the, my anxiety and depression is rooted in an unwillingness to live in authentic community. So those are the kinds of questions that would say, Okay, our depression and anxiety could be caused by sin, uh, and it can also result in sin. And so we might ask questions like this. Um, does your depression and anxiety result in sins of omission? You know, as a result of being bogged down in these motions, are there things that God has called you to do that you say, look, I don't have time to do that right now? So a passivity towards life. Does it result in destructive habits or forms of escape through self-medication? Uh, Self-centeredness. You know, depression and anxiety tends to be emotions that cause us to want to cave in on ourselves. Uh, pride. Uh, we just think nothing that anybody has to say could apply because our situation is totally different. Uh, and we begin to see how, how connected this experience is and it helps us understand why John Piper uh, would say something like this. Uh, anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make us irritable and abrupt and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make us withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how someone will respond uh, to you can make you cover the truth and lie about many things. So if anxiety could be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. Okay? So if we're going to acknowledge the breadth of it, we've got to be able to sort our emotional laundry, figure out when it belongs in this moral category. We also would want to be able to identify what are some of the kinds of thinking uh, that undergird our depression and anxiety. Because in the same way that you can have bad physical habits like biting your nails and that kind of stuff, you can have bad cognitive, bad mental habits. And so I list ten here. 
uh, just for you to go, how many of these are a part of my life that would just fester and make anxiety and depression more pronounced in my life? Uh, idealistic thinking. Usually this is good goals that have lost any sense of time. If it's good, it should be now. Uh, there's no sense of process or development. Uh, if we apply that externally, uh, and we're kind of projecting that onto other people, then it either makes us prideful or angry. Uh, if we do that internally, uh, and about ourselves being idealistic, uh, that's usually when we're depressed or anxious. Uh, impossibly high goals. Uh, personalization. You know, just this idea, we cannot withstand the weight of being the center of our own world. And so if I interpret everything as if it had something to do with me, if every time I send an email and I don't get a prompt response, I can't imagine this other person being busy and having lots of stuff going on in their world. They just must be upset with me. That kind of personalization is not something I can live up under. Emotional reasoning. This is what I would say is confusing the realness of our emotions with the truthfulness of our emotions. Emotions are real. They happen. We feel them. They have neurological expressions in our brain and other parts of our body. But just because they're real doesn't mean they're true. And oftentimes it's very hard for us to separate those things um, because it, it just feels so right, so accurate. It, it's hard to doubt uh, our fears. Catastrophizing, which is easier to write than to say. Um, when we just make a worst case scenario of, of anything, uh, dichotomous thinking. Things are either good or terrible. Uh, black or white. So when I get into that kind of dichotomous thinking, if it's not great, there's only other, one other basket for it to go into. It's terrible. Now what is, again, I think worth noting, this is the same kind of logic uh, that chronic anger reveals. Uh, it's very black or white, all or nothing. Um, great or terrible, um, selective attention. We all practice selective attention all of the time. Our brains would blow up if we didn't. If right now you try to pay attention to every sensory experience that was going on around you, you were paying attention to my voice and my movements the humming of what's going on, the wrapping of paper, the sensation of the chair that was uh, underneath you, the hardness of the bar that was right under you, the itch that you've got right here that now that I talked about it, you really do want to scratch it. If you tried to screen through every stimulus that was going on, again, you, we'd all be ADD. Um, it, we can't do that. So we all practice selective attention. What happens oftentimes in depression and anxiety, is the screening mechanism is anything that's positive, anything that's a blessing, anything that's good, begins to be what's filtered out. Uh, that's what uh, Albers and Friends is talking about here when it says anxiety recruits additional anxiety. 
persons with pathological anxiety, those whose anxiety has become disordered, typically scan the environment and are hypervigilant for stimuli that might evoke anxiety and monitor themselves for symptoms of anxiety. Um, Such scanning and monitoring represent the state of anticipatory anxiety. Again, it's just this idea of screening. Superstitious thinking. Uh, Now, it's, it's cute for kids and for athletes to be superstitious. Uh, I say that as an athlete, because when I was a kid and, and my mom wanted to wash my baseball hat, I mean, I totally flipped out. There was all kinds of good luck on that. And, and then when I started coaching my boys' baseball team, and we've been the muck dogs for five seasons. I don't even know what a muck dog is. But we've been that, and my wife's like, your hat stinks, I need to wash it. No! You do not wash a baseball hat. Uh, can I get an amen from somebody in here just says you don't wash a baseball hat? Uh, that's cute. Uh, in the area of a kid, or maybe kind of sort of with an athlete. Um, But we get into where we just start giving meaning and significance to things that it just should not have. Uh, And that's a a mode of thinking that contributes uh, to anxiety. Uh, Passivity. If I can't choose blank, then I can't choose anything. If there is this one choice that is important to me, and I feel powerless to make it, then I make that a blanket statement to all of the other choices that are available in my life. And as I grow increasingly passive, uh, the pressures of life begin to mount. Uh, Equating worth with performance. Uh, I just feel like I've got to do good in order to be acceptable. Um, And we may be people who say we believe in salvation by grace alone, um, but oftentimes our emotions, uh, they begin to say, no, uh, we really believe in salvation by performance alone. Uh, when, I, when I live up to a certain standard, then I'm okay and I can experience emo- uh, emotional equilibrium. But until I do, I should punish myself and feel distressed. Now, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick and Laura Hendrickson point out something to us uh, that I think is worth noting. Uh, She says, uh, or they say, why does this happen? Uh, And here they're talking about these kind of mental patterns becoming chronic. Uh, Because of the plasticity uh, or mutability of the brain, over time new neural pathways can be created by habit of thought so that even the slightest suggestion of a frightening imagination can instantaneously produce a rapid heartbeat or upset stomach. Um, And again, forget some of the neurophysiology of that for a moment, but over a period of time, the content of our thoughts basically create ruts in our brain. Um, We habituate ourselves to think in particular manners. And so the more we think in those ways, the more natural it becomes both cognitively and even a bit in our physiology, to think in those ways. Now, we think in other ways, and healthy ruts can be created just in the same manner as unhealthy ruts. But let's look at one more question uh, under acknowledging the breadth and impact of our struggle. Um, is what areas of life are affected? Uh, because, um, you know, our inside world is affected by depression and anxiety, but our outside world is too, our, our body and surroundings. Um, 
And so one of those effects uh, can be the lack of authentic relationships. When you persistently struggle with depression and anxiety, and you've got people who ask you, how are you doing today? That becomes such a loaded question. Because if I give you the long answer, it's going to be socially awkward. If I give you the short answer, then I reinforce this notion that nobody understands. Uh, One of the goals of this seminar is to give us a tool to facilitate authenticity. Uh, To give us something, because you don't have to be honest with everybody to have a few people in your life that you trust and you can be authentic with. And if you just, you've probably got those kinds of friends if you knew how to get the conversation started. If you just said, this was something that I've kind of struggled with uh, for a period of time. Can we go through this study together, just kind of get breakfast or lunch or hang out on Saturday for a bit and just me invite you into this part of my world and, and you'd be able to pray for me a little better? I would love for this kind of seminar to facilitate more and more of those kinds of relationships. Now, anxiety and depression takes a toll on your body. Um, Archibald Hart, uh, he says, the effects of anxiety and stress include physical and emotional exhaustion, depression, heart disease, stroke, depletion of calcium in the bones, immune system vulnerability, immune disorders, cancer, gastrointestinal problems, eating problems, weight gain, especially around the abdomen. Just, you know, Jenny Craig cannot spot reduce fat. This seminar will. Boom. Take that, Jenny. All right diabetes, pain. Are you guys encouraged already? Sleep disturbances, sexual and reproductive dysfunction, self-medication, unhealthy lifestyle, damage to brain causing hippocampal atrophy, uh, deterioration of brain cells, memory loss, diminished concentration, acceleration of the aging process. Um, it, depression and anxiety takes a physical toll on our body. Uh, decrease in tension span. In that sense, a persistent emotion Shares, shares some things in common with chronic pain. One of the ways I've described chronic pain, it's just like somebody had a loud little jukebox right here behind you, and it was constantly playing, and you were trying to go through life filtering out this blare behind you instead of being an auditory stimulus, it's a physical stimulus of pain, and, and you're trying to pay attention to the world through that distraction. Uh, the experience of depression and anxiety can provide that kind of uh, attention, distraction, interpretation of events. Uh, our emotional disposition influences our cognitive interpretations. I mean, we all know this. When we're in a bad mood, everything's bad. I mean, food doesn't even taste good. When we're in a bad mood, we just eat for comfort or to distract ourselves, not even because the food tastes good. Uh, and so it that kind of down mood uh, tends to uh, impact our um, interpretation of events. Uh, Lifestyle of avoidance, lifestyle of escapes, just kind of a couple increasing levels that um, everything begins to feel like it requires too much, and then we start turning to things like alcohol or prescription drugs, video games or some fantasy outlet uh, to to try to just distract ourselves and get away. And then, less enjoyment of normal pleasures. I mean, one of the sides of depression that's often missed is not just the down mood, uh, but what uh, clinicians tend to call adhedonia. Uh, Ad meaning gone, hedonia, uh, pleasure. The things that I normally enjoy 
just don't seem to bring the same kind of pleasure that they did before. Conversations seem drab. Hobbies seem boring. I just, there's no life in those things anymore. Uh, it's as if life was a, a television show that used to be in color and now it's in black and white with the soundtrack muted. There's just not as much uh, to move me. Yeah, Charles Hodges again says, when people struggle with a depressed mood, uh, they do hurt emotionally and the pain they feel spreads to every corner of their lives, touching all who love them. If you want to take a measure of someone's character, the most direct route I can think of is to tell him no. Um, and I would just use that to, to make this point. It is oftentimes that those that I work with who struggle with depression and anxiety are some of my greatest heroes. Because I see them going through life, battling to do the things that are important, to love their family well, to fulfill their roles in life well, without any of the, the motivators of pleasure and satisfaction that propel me to do those things. And I, and I wonder what it would be like um, if if I was trying to do the things that I'm called to do in life, and that self-fulfilling reward system was turned off and muted, would I be able to love God and love others in the way that I see this person persevering to do in light of uh, that muted uh, reward system that exists? Now, if you ask me, what is it that I'm supposed to do at the end of, of this step? It's, one, uh, don't get overwhelmed. Uh, nothing that we just reflected on was added to your experience. It's not as if we said it and it became true. Uh, we just put it into words so that we could be equipped uh, to grapple with and change that experience. Uh, and as we get a sense of maybe how large this is and we see even more clearly why this is a struggle that we're not going to overcome without God, uh, we get a sense if my battle is this big uh, and God can help me overcome it, He must be larger still. And even in our moment of overwhelmment, just using that as a kind of anticipatory reflection uh, of how large God will seem uh, as we move through this.